Heavenly Father, thank you for our break and for the good weather that gave us opportunity to be outside perhaps or to travel and just enjoy the, the world around us that you created for our enjoyment, Father. Thank you, Lord, for, for that time of, of break. And then, Father, thank you for bringing us back. Uh, you are God who has set the times and seasons of our world and our life and the rhythm of it, Father, is a reflection of your faithfulness and your steadfastness and even the small things like coming back into a room to study like we've been doing for so long here is just another piece of evidence to show, Father, that you love us and care for us and are always working to bring us somewhere good, Father. And I thank you, Lord, that we're back. And I thank you also, Father, that uh, we're coming into the end of another book. It's, um, it's a joy, Father, to have seen the things we've seen and to know there's more waiting still and to have been protected in our time and in our energy so that we can be a part of this. Tonight, Lord, we, uh, we know we're going to get to some new things, things that are different and uh, probably not things that we've ter- necessarily learned before, heard before. But, uh, Father, we ask that you would uh, guide our hearts in this and show us the truth in a meaningful way and uh, protect us from, from speculation so that what we know, Father, is what we can know and that we would follow you truly in what we've heard. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past few lessons... We've studied those three chapters that represent David's testing. It started with David offending the Lord when he sinned against the Lord's anointed in the way that he cut the hem of Saul's robe. Remember that. And as a result of that failure, there was the next chapter in which the Lord gave David that lesson in humility using Abigail to demonstrate how you do work with someone who is to be revered or not revered, but respected, I should say, uh, despite their sin. What a servant's heart really looks like. And then David learned that lesson, and then it came time for David to show that he had learned, and the Lord gave him an opportunity to pass a second test, much like the first one. And in that case, David defended Saul, he appealed to the Lord for his own defense, for his own protection, and in the process, we also saw just a little bit of the weakness of David's heart, which continues on, that is, the weakness for women when he takes another wife in Abigail. So that's the summary of what we studied over those three chapters. Now, since David has passed the test... It's time for the Lord to move David into the position that God has been preparing him for all this time. It's time for David to become king. But first, the Lord's got to orchestrate Saul's departure before David can take the role. And in the last section of this book, starting tonight in chapter 27 and running to the end in chapter 31, we are in a single segment, a single storyline of how Saul's reign comes to an end in preparation for David to come to the throne. Now, of course, David's arrival in the position and all that follows is 2 Samuel which is not what we'll be looking at in this go-round. So we're really only looking at how Saul has moved off the scene as we finish the book. But in the process, we're also going to see David's heart still has some doubts, still has some weaknesses. There's still yet a little more training necessary before he's ready. And so the Lord's going to orchestrate circumstances to correct and strengthen David in the midst of working to remove Saul and elevate David. And to illustrate that point, the story begins with David returning to hide among the Philistines, which repeats a mistake he made early in his flight. We'll start there. Chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said to himself, Now, I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Malch, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Anahinam, the Jezreelitess, 
and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. So the chapter opens with David deciding that he has to once more flee from Saul, from Jewish territory, and hide among Israel's enemies in Philistia. He knows that Saul cannot move freely in the territory of the Philistines, so he goes there with his 600 men to this man named Achish. He's the king of the Philistine city of Gath. Remember, the Philistines had kings over cities. And this particular city, Gath, had its king of Achish. David not only goes with his men, but as you hear, they take their households. So they're taking their families, everyone who's been with them now apparently in the flight. So the questions start to come pretty quickly. Why, for example, would the Philistines open their doors to David at all? Why would they treat him kindly? Well, the simple answer is, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So anything that weakened Saul was to the advantage of the Philistines. David was the best military leader that Saul had, so they're only going to be too glad to take David away from Saul in that respect. And it's it's sort of like when a sports team recruits away the top player from a rival. You figure we get him instead of the other side. Secondly, the Philistines plan to enlist David in the battles that they have against Israel, and they know that once David takes up arms against his own people, the Jews are never going to take him back. And that's a calculated move to weaken Israel by the Philistines. But perhaps the more important question is, is David right, is he correct, to escape into Philistia, to this Philistine city? Was this the move that God wanted him to make? Is this something God endorses, in other words? Well, we can answer that question by observing some of the details in what we see happening. And also in remembering the reason for David's flight from Saul in the first place. Why was he in the position to have to run from Saul all these years? Let's look at the details first. We see things that indicate David was not acting with the Lord's approval. For example, in verse verse 1, we're told David said to himself. That's evocative of the Pharisee who prays to himself in Luke's Gospel, right? This phrase is very specific, and it stands in contrast to previous moments in this book. In the past, remember, when David had faced difficult decisions, what do you see him doing? He's, he's, we've noted this in the room. We've noted David is always faithful to go to the Lord in prayer, asking the Lord for direction on what he's supposed to do next. David's tendency to pray was in, was in marked contrast to Saul. It's something that's brought out in the book particularly to illustrate how the two men are so different. But now you don't see that. You see David taking no one's counsel except his own, which is very Saul-like in what we've seen happening elsewhere in the book. In fact, there's no mention of God anywhere in this chapter. So it would seem as though David is acting entirely without consideration for the Lord's will. Furthermore, David's reasoning for this flight is that it's the only way he'll live. That unless he flees, he will not live. Unless he finds sanctuary, Saul will kill him. And yet David has received assurances from multiple sources just in the last few chapters that he, in fact, will be king. Samuel has told him that. Jonathan has told him that. Even Saul himself, speaking prophetically, said that surely David would be king in the land. And yet somehow, in spite of all that, David is convinced that the Lord is prepared to allow him to die at the hand of Saul, which would, of course, negate all of those prophetic promises of what was coming. That's not an act of confidence on David's part, clearly. And then there's the comment he makes at the end of verse 3 when it says that David was traveling with his multiple wives. I think that's there pointedly because Samuel's implying that David is paying the price of assuming the burden of these women. In, In other words, he's so concerned for their welfare and for the welfare of the household that he's willing to compromise in this way. It's not so much for his own sake that he's doing this, but out of a defense for his family that he's doing this. Somewhat reminding us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 about it is good to marry if you wish, but it's also good not to marry, and that if you do marry, you will have burdens that you won't have to have in ministry if you don't marry. Pointing out the fact that when you have to care for others' needs as well, it naturally and inevitably 
puts a governor on what you're able to go do in ministry because you have to consider their needs. In this case, David took inappropriate steps in extending his family. Now he's thinking so much about his wives that he's fleeing for their behalf, or so it would seem anyway. Finally, and most importantly, David is stepping away from the fight that God wants him to experience. David's trial in fleeing Saul all these years in the desert, that's something the Lord has purposed. You remember earlier he had the opportunity to stay in that sanctuary city, or so he thought, and the Lord talked to him directly and said, you can't stay here, you've got to keep moving. The Lord has been working, obviously, to give David the trials that come from this conflict with Saul. And so he's being pursued by Saul for good purposes. And yet, David now is opting for escape over persecution. And in doing so, he's actually evading the purposes God has in him being in the situation he's in. So when you put all of this together, it would point to David acting in disobedience when he flees into Philistia, when he goes to Gath. He's not sought the Lord's counsel. He's probably running for the wrong reasons. And he's forgetting the difficulty of his circumstances are intended for good. And he needs to subject himself to the Lord's authority in that. Thankfully, our mistakes do not ruin God's plans. And one way or another, the Lord is going to get his way. By our disobedience, we can alter the playbook of our life in a sense, but we're not going to alter the outcome of what God's trying to accomplish. So David's escape becomes opportunity for the Lord to simply work in a different way to accomplish the same goals in his life. And what's going to happen is the Lord's going to work through the Philistines to continue David's training to a degree. We'll see that play out now over several chapters. At the same time, though, the Lord, because he's always got more than one storyline going on, he's going to use the circumstances of David in Philistine territory to accomplish a secondary good purpose, and that is to bring an end to Saul's rule. And David plays a role in that process too. So let's move forward from there. Verse 4. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Just briefly, I'm stopping briefly there just to point out that David's plan works. At least as far as David can see. Saul can't prosecute his attack against David because he can't take on the whole Philistine army, which is what would have happened. And he's clearly unwilling to do that. So David is safe, or so he thinks, for now. And so it appears David intends to remain in the Philistine territory until Saul dies. That would be the expectation we should have. But that's a pretty tricky plan on David's part. That's not easy. It sounds easy, but it's not easy. Because the Philistines aren't idiots. They're not going to allow David to just hide out in their territory so that he can just walk back into Israel when the time's right and take power and become their enemy again. I mean, again, they're not idiots. David's going to have to convince them that he's truly defecting from Israel. He's brought his men, he's brought his family, so he appears to be coming to stay for the duration, but eventually they're going to seek some sign of loyalty from him, something that they can say for certain means he'll never go back. And for them that means he has to kill some Jews and put himself squarely on the side of the Philistines. Now David is not an idiot either, so he's anticipating that he's going to have to do something like that in order to gain the time he needs to spend in Philistine territory. So he has a plan as well, and that's where we go next. Here's David's plan, verse 5. Then David says to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country, that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up, and raided the Geshurites and the Gerizites and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive, and he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. 
So here's David's plan. It begins with him telling the king, proposing to the king, that he become a vassal of the king. David, quite deceptively, refers to himself in that as the servant of Achish. And then he proposes to go rule over one of the cities of the Philistines. And the king likes where this is going. So he gives or awards David the city of Ziklag, not a particularly nice city, a kind of second-class city within the nation. But nonetheless, it's for David. So David goes and takes control of it. And the location of this place just happens to be perfectly suited to the rest of David's plan, and I doubt by coincidence. It's the extreme southern border of the, the territory controlled by the Philistines at the very edge of the hill country. So it's sort of southeast corner of what they controlled. The Philistine kings and the cities they lived in are quite a distance north of this. And Achish, particularly in Gath, is way north of this, which would mean that David and his men can come and go and conduct themselves without being observed in whatever they do down in this town. He's the sheriff of the town. He basically owns the town, can do whatever he wants in the town. And that's exactly the opportunity David wanted. For 16 months, we're told, David lives in this town with his crew, And as the writer says, the kings of Judah have never relinquished control of that town once David gained it. So it was nothing he ever had to give up to the Philistines again. Immediately he begins to lead these military excursions against common enemies of the Philistines and the Jews and Israel. These people he attacks were the descendants of the Canaanites that lived in the land at the time that Joshua came in. This is the southern desert that separates Israel from Egypt. David is attacking then the same people that Joshua told Israel to defeat when they first entered the land hundreds of years earlier. But of course, we probably all know this, Israel disobeyed those commands by and large. And so these people groups have remained in the land, even to this day of David. So what David is doing here, in a sense, is exactly what the Lord commanded Israel to be done in the first place. Utterly destroy the inhabitants of the land so the land can become Israel's. That was always the plan. He leaves no one alive, which again was the Lord's command. Notice in verse 8 that these people include the descendants of Amalek, the Amalekites. You may remember Amalek from the story of Exodus. Amalek and his descendants have been under a curse from God since the time they attacked Israel when Israel was wandering in the desert. Yet the nation of Israel failed to carry out that command. Uh, It came out of Deuteronomy 25.17. God says, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at, the, at your rear when you were faint and weary and did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. You must not forget. That's what they were told back in Deuteronomy. So David is, in that sense, obeying the Lord. He's effectively carrying out the orders that no one else had been able to carry out in all the years since. And he achieves these impressive victories with only his crew of 600 misfits. Although by now they're hardened soldiers, certainly. But nonetheless, his success proves that Israel could have accomplished these same feats in earlier days because the same God that's leading David now is the same God that would have been leading Israel in those days. It's not that the Lord stopped awarding them victories. It's that the people stopped trying. And so they now still have this this fight within the land. So David's raids serve that purpose for Israel's sake. But for David's sake particularly, they become an opportunity for him to convince the Philistines that he's on their side. And this is how he does it. Verse 10. Now Achish said, Where have you made a raid today? And David said, Against the Negev of Judah, and against the Negev of the Jeremihilites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. 
David did not leave a man or woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, Otherwise they will tell about us, saying, So has David done, and so has been his practice all the time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has surely made himself odious among his people Israel, therefore he will become my servant forever. So David and the king meet again in Gath, and what I suppose, and what Josephus actually says as well, is that David brought spoils from the victories that he just finished all the way back to Achish in Gath as a tribute. But he had a secondary purpose, of course, because he knows that when he brings all these things to Achish, Achish is going to ask where you got them from. And that's David's opportunity to say he was raiding, and he says he was raiding in the Negev of Judah and surrounding areas. Now, technically, he's right. Technically, he's describing the same area that he just raided. The Negev Desert is the desert in which all of those other people groups you just heard are living in. But he is borderline deceptive because he is saying it is the Negev of the Judah, Judites, implying, of course, that he was attacking Judah in that area, which, of course, he was not. And as you see, David uh, knew what he was going to say when he came up there. He knew how it had to play in order for it to work. And so he utterly destroyed all the inhabitants to leave no evidence. So there's no one who could contradict his version of the story, which starts to color everything he's done, doesn't it? I mean, if you'd stopped earlier, you might have said, yeah, he was just doing what God asked the Israelites to do. Go, David. But his motives are all important. And his motive here was not to obey the command of Joshua. His, his motive was, uh, at least in part, to create the storyline that he needed in order to convince the Philistines he was on their side. And so the victims of his raiding were simply convenient collateral damage for the purposes that he had. His actions certainly achieved a measure of benefit for Israel, but nevertheless, he was wrong. And every indication we have tells us that David was wrong to set about doing all that he's doing among the Philistines. And not the least of which is he's back to his old tricks of deception to get what he wants. He steps into the Philistine territory without consulting the Lord. He devises a plan of his own making, thinking he's securing a victory for himself or for Israel. But in the end, what he does is he substitutes one set of dangers for another. And he sins in the process. Later in chapter 30... You're going to see the full effect of the sin of his situation here play out. So he's sown some seeds here that are going to take a while before they grow. The Lord's going to teach David yet another lesson about taking matters into his own hands as a result of what he's done here. And of course, as you might expect, out of that lesson, David will grow in dependence on the Lord and he will mature still further. So there's still a good ending in that respect. Meanwhile, his deception of the king is working. Akish is now convinced that David has fought Jews in the Negev, and as a result, David is a pariah among Israel. He'll have to stay with the Philistines because he doesn't have a home anymore back in Israel. But in chapter 27, you've merely got the beginning, the setup, for what's coming in the next several chapters now as we move through the end of Saul's reign. And tonight we're going to go one chapter further, verse 1 of chapter 28. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camp for war to fight against Israel. And Akish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. We'll pause there. This is a setup. So it's after the 16 months, more or less, the time has come now for the Philistines to mount their latest attack against the nation of Israel. And so the army of the Philistines is assembling by the tens of thousands. And their intent is to cut Israel in half more or less north to south. They're going to assemble up in the northern part of the nation and try to sweep down through the valleys that divide the nation. And when 
King Achish sees David, he decides that David's men are going to march in this battle column in the rear ranks near where he is going to be with his personal staff, etc. So he makes them his bodyguards and the king announces this to David and David responds in this very cryptic manner. He says, well, you know what I can do. Now, Achish's ears heard that to be a promise that David could come through for him and kill his brethren. That David was not afraid, in other words, to take the lives of his fellow Jews. Once again, though, it's deception by omission. Because David knows how the king will hear his words, and so he's intentionally misleading him in the way he phrased it. But David means it in an entirely different way. Meanwhile, back in Gilbeah, Saul is panicking at the prospect of this massive Philistine invasion. And we can tell how distressed Saul is because he seeks the Lord's counsel, which is not something we've seen him do much of, if at all. Look at verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shinum. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by the Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So at this point in the narrative, we're reminded that Samuel's gone, he's died. We heard that in an earlier chapter, of course, but it's repeating it here because it sets up where Saul goes. So you have Samuel, who was the primary prophet of Israel during Saul's reign. He's gone, so Saul has no reliable source to consult for God's word. It appears as though there were some other prophets alive as well. He seeks help from them. They give him nothing. And then in what was probably one of the better moments of Saul's reign, when he obeyed the law, he acted to remove all mediums and all spiritists in the land of Israel. These are both closely related in power and in function. A medium is one who claims to communicate with the dead. A spiritist is a person who communicates with evil spirits. In both cases, you're tapping into demonic power. And therefore, the law had given to Israel a command that God's people would always destroy anyone who was in either of these groups, and they prohibited God's people from ever taking advantage or availing themselves of such power. These people were to be put to death. Now, at some point in his reign, Saul had done this very thing. Now Saul regrets it. And he begins to appeal, as he's you know, appealed to the Lord for wisdom, and he's gotten nowhere there. The Lord's not speaking to him. The Lord's giving radio silence to Saul. He can't go to prophets. Dreams aren't working. It's interesting here, it even says that he went to the Urim. Now, remember, the high priest had in the ephod a pouch for these two stones we call Urim and the Thummim. The idea was you could throw these stones, the high priest could throw them in seeking a word from the Lord. You phrased a question with a yes-no answer, and then God effectively made the stones behave in such a way that they could give a yes or a no to the question, and you got an answer from God on some question that way. Now, we know David has the true high priest who followed David and took the ephod with him, so he took the stones with him. So Saul can't have the true Urim and Thummim anymore. Therefore, he must have made a new set, which the Lord clearly did not honor, right? I mean, it's not like you lose your dice, you just pick up another set. These are, these are special. But this detail tells us that the stones must have behaved in a supernatural way. They couldn't have operated in a natural way like dice. Think about it. Otherwise, Saul could have taken his counterfeit, posed his yes-no question, thrown them, and then received a, quote, answer, though a false one. But there must have been something about the way the stones work, because it says here he got no answer. 
So it must be that somehow God affected the stones in such a way that you could know when he was truly using them or when he was not. Though we still don't know how that would have worked. So anyway, Saul's got nothing. So he resorts to asking his servants, can you find me one of those mediums we put to death? Did we miss anybody? (laughs) We've just heard that Saul removed them, right? And yet now you see him hoping there's still one out there. So his servants say, yeah, there's, there's a woman, I think, up in Endor. That's kind of a risky thing to admit, isn't it? Right? He's ordered that his people kill them all, and now he's asking, do I leave any? You'd think almost like that's a trick question. Well, I'm not sure I'm supposed to answer this question. Though. But I guess they could sense he really wanted one, so they said, yeah, we think we know there's one up in Endor. And Endor is located at the hill of Moray in the Jezreel Valley. And as it turns out, this town sits on the opposite side of the mountain where the Philistines are massing their forces. So it's very close to where the battle is going to be. So anyway, Saul goes to visit this woman, and he's going to seek divine wisdom on how to fight the approaching army. Verse 8, Then Saul disguises himself by putting on other clothes, and went he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done. Now he has cut those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Well, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. So Saul prepares to see this woman first by disguising himself. And you you can see why he'd need to disguise himself, right? She's already picking up on it, too. If she recognized him as king, well, she's never going to agree to do what she's just seen the king killing other people for doing. So now, ironically, Saul's got to disguise himself and travel by night to obtain what he wants. And by the way, the nighttime setting for this scene serves to reinforce the evil in Saul's heart. It becomes metaphoric for evil. Despite his efforts to conceal his identity, the woman is still suspicious that these guys have come in with false motives, and so she asks for reassurance. And he goes the next step of literally entering into a covenant with this woman. He vows by the name of the Lord that she will never receive punishment for this act. This is a covenant. This goes hand in hand with Saul's previous actions. While you see David entering into covenants with men like Jonathan, you see Saul entering into covenants with women who are mediums or witches, as some call them. It's further evidence of what Saul's been doing his whole reign. He's completely concerned with externals and completely unconcerned with internals. He wants to be seen as someone who upholds the law, so he goes and kills all the spiritists and the mediums. Of course, unless he needs one, in which case then the law doesn't matter anymore and he's all for it. He says to the woman, I want you to bring up Samuel. And as we said earlier, a medium was a person who claimed to have the power to bring up dead loved ones so that you could communicate with them. In reality, a medium never conjures up anybody. Mediums do not work. The spirit of the dead are held by God and cannot be brought up except by the same power. Instead, mediums are always communicating with evil spirits who impersonate dead people. So the evil spirits are willing to play the charade because it accomplishes their purpose in trapping people into the occult. And by what they may communicate, those evil spirits can influence the thoughts of people to suit their destructive purposes. Obviously, knowing how these occultic practices work just reinforces the truth of God's word, which warns the people of God to stay far away from such things. And by the way, they don't always come looking like a gypsy. There's a lot of ways in modern society in which the evil of demonic spirits are working to influence the thoughts 
and the hearts, the emotions of people. And they'll work with displays, signs, wonders, and the like in any way they can. And we miss them because they don't want to be seen for who they really are. So we'll fall for their charade. For what it's worth, my own personal contention is even things like alien sightings and the like are more likely demonic manifestations than they are anything real in substance. But because we're so taken in by them, we fall prey to the storyline. This is another example. So it's presumable that even in the day that these people practiced, and they still do today, that many of the mediums are themselves equally fooled by the experiences because they think they've actually possessed power to raise dead, and yet the spirits they're talking to are not the person they think they're talking to. It's, it's simply an apparition bringing what they need to see. And maybe in some cases the medium is in on the trick. Maybe some understand they're just toying with the spirit world and they're not actually speaking to the dead person who's been asked to come up. Either way, so long as their clients are fooled and convinced by the display, well, the mediums are successful in their business. So, spiritists talk to evil spirits, and that's what they claim to do. Mediums interact with evil spirits, but they claim to be talking to dead people. It's human souls. So, Saul asks for the medium to bring up Samuel, because Saul wants to hear a word from Samuel concerning the coming battle. Saul knows Samuel has always been a reliable source in the past, uh, ironically, when Samuel lived, though, Saul didn't take much advantage of any of that knowledge, right? There's times when he ignored Samuel. There's a lot of times when he just flat out disobeyed whatever Samuel told him to do. Now, though, because he's worried about his own skin, now he's determined to know what God might say, and every other avenue shut off, so he's going to this extreme measure to try to find a word from Samuel. And, of course, the greatest irony of all is that Saul would consider doing something like this, this clearly ungodly thing, as a means to understanding what God wants. Think about it. Why would Saul suppose that the Lord would honor him with a new word when Saul is acting so contrary to God's existing word? That shows the warped thinking of a man who has descended this far into his sin nature. That he thinks he can divine the knowledge of God through ungodly means. You can't find holiness through ungodliness. He's so ruled by his sinful flesh that he can construct this kind of contradictory logic and put his trust in it. So then the medium begins her act here for Saul. Notice in verse 12, though, it says, When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Now here's where observing detail makes a big difference in conclusions, I think, for what's going on here. Notice it in an instant, verse 12, in an instant, an, a vision of Samuel appears, catching the woman completely by surprise. She's off guard. She alone sees Samuel, by the way. Saul does not see anything, obviously. He has to ask questions to know what she's seeing. But what she sees shocks her. In the process, it seems that the vision of Samuel names Saul. So the vision speaks back to her to name the person that's with her as Saul. And that's the first thing that she turns to Saul and says, You're Saul? The vision seems to be revealing it to her. And that leads the woman to turn to her client in anger because she knows she's been tricked. Now think about the woman's response for just a moment. Her response to this vision would confirm for us that this was not the normal experience for her when she did her bit. In the past... When she's communicating to supposed dead people, she's talking to evil spirits, which must have followed a certain pattern that she knew very well. 
But clearly, by her reaction, this experience is proceeding in a very unexpected manner. She's so scared, in fact, that Saul has to calm her down. Furthermore, notice the text never indicates the woman ever does anything at all. It's almost as if before she could start her shtick, Samuel appears. Saul names Samuel's name, and then at the very same moment, a vision of Samuel appears to the woman, catching her off guard. She hadn't even had the chance to begin her incantations. So then, what do you assume is happening here in light of all of those details? It would appear as though the Lord brought the woman a vision of Samuel. The medium did not call Samuel up from the dead, for she did not possess the power to do so in any case. And we see that by her response. She's not in control of what's happening. The Lord brings a vision of Samuel in this moment. And I keep saying a vision of Samuel because I believe that's what the woman experienced. I don't believe Samuel's literal spirit was actually present with them in this room. Rather, I think the woman's experience was comparable to, for example, the experiences that Isaiah had or that the Apostle John had in Revelation. In those cases, for example, those men see something, but their visions. We know that Isaiah could not have literally have been in the presence of God, for he was sinful flesh, and the Messiah had not yet come. We know that John could not have literally seen the destruction of the earth as he describes it, because it's still here. He's seeing a vision of reality. It is reality in a sense that it may one day exist, but it didn't happen in that moment. So the woman saw and heard from Samuel, but her experience was a vision provided by the Lord as a means of communication. It does not require that Samuel literally have been pulled up from Sheol, disrupted and stood in front of them in that sense. Now, having said that, could that have literally have happened? Yes, and there's nothing in the text to necessarily preclude it. God can do whatever he wants. I'm just pointing out that it's not absolutely essential or necessary that he's done that. It's only essential or necessary that the woman see it as Samuel and communicate it as such to Saul. Even Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I went to the third heaven. Whether I went there or not, I don't really know. (laughs) I just know what I saw. The main issue is not whether Samuel's spirit was really there. The main issue is whose power is driving the scene. It's the Lord's. And the woman never had the power to do anything more than a parlor trick using evil demons. But God is using her through this experience because that's where Saul is sitting. And it's the opportunity God wants to use to put the final judgment on Saul's life for the evil that he's participating in. So as Saul sees the medium's fear, he asks her, tell me what you're seeing. She starts with a divine being coming, notice, out of the earth. And we'll start with divine. The word divine there in Hebrew is Elohim. That's the common word for God. That's further proof that this woman is seeing something very different than she has seen in the past, right? This spirit looks like God to her, not like the demons she's dealt with in the past. And then as Saul presses for more detail, she gives him more of the description to the point where then he knows, okay, that's Samuel, I recognize him, he's got that robe on again. And then in another act of hypocritical piety, Saul bows to the ground. Obviously, Saul never gave Samuel any such consideration when he was alive, so we know that gesture is completely self-serving. More importantly, it was inappropriate, because you don't direct your worship to men. This is just obviously a heart that's a hot mess at this point. He doesn't know what he's doing. And notice that the vision comes up out of the ground. That's important because it reaffirms for us something that is consistent across all scripture. The holding place for the dead is in the ground in Sheol prior to Christ's first coming. And even today for the unbeliever, that's also still the destination. You're literally standing on the souls of all unbelievers who've ever lived. They're down in hell and hell, or as we say, hell. And it is in the center of the earth. It's always expressed that way in scripture. So through the vision, the purpose now gets revealed. The Lord gives Saul a judgment for all his time of rebellion and sin, culminating, of course, with this moment of occultic behavior. Verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed. 
For the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me, and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams, and therefore I have called you, that you may make known to me what I should do. Samuel said, Why then you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, to David. And as you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. And therefore, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel asks Saul, why am I up here? Again, it does not require that it be literally Samuel there, but a vision would suffice. But either way, he asks the question, and Saul's answer, of course, is completely self-centered. It's significant that Saul doesn't ask Samuel the most important question he should have asked under these circumstances, which is, why has the Lord stopped responding to me? Why can I not get these answers from the Lord? That would have been the important question. Saul may be afraid of what the Philistines would do to his body, but what he should have been worried about is, what's the Lord doing with his soul? Why am I offline? from the Lord. Samuel responds by giving Saul sobering news concerning the Lord's plans. First, the Lord speaks through the vision of Samuel to give Saul the answer to that question that Saul never thought to ask. That is to say, why are you offline from the Lord? He says the Lord's silence is a result of him having withdrawn his spirit and having become his adversary as a result of Saul's sin. What Samuel's saying is, Why do you expect me, a prophet of God, to tell you anything if the Lord himself is not inclined to speak to you? Because prophets are simply men who say what the Lord tells them to say. So if he's not talking to you, there's nothing I can say to you. That's his main point. You're already offline from God whether you go directly to him or come through me. That's the central issue in Saul's life. He has set himself against the Lord and against the Lord's word. And as a result, Saul is only going to know silence and frustration at every turn. I've heard it said that people who have set aside the Word of God find it very hard to hear the Word of God any time it comes to them. It's a self-reinforcing problem. Those who are in the Word hear the Lord with greater sensitivity. Those who are not in the Word, in a sense, become unable to hear it even when it's shouted at them. And the writer of Hebrews makes a very similar point in chapter 5 along the lines of, though you ought now be teachers of the Word, you still have need to be taught the elementary principles of the oracles of God. This, This principle that says if you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. Saul's never moved forward much at all. And so he cannot hear from God. God is not going to speak to him. Another way to put it is because he didn't listen to God, God's not listening to him. And there's no way for Saul to go around this barrier that God has instituted without repentance. And even with repentance at this point, he's crossed the line, Samuel says. And he's not got the kingdom anymore. David now is the rightful heir. And so it's only a matter of time before the end comes. In fact, Samuel reveals that day is now coming sooner than Saul expected. The massing of the Philistine army is now going to be the instrument that the Lord uses to put an end to Saul's dynasty. And not only will Saul die tomorrow, which is news itself, but his son Jonathan is going to die tomorrow as well. The whole line of verse 19 raises several questions. First, the fact that Saul and Jonathan die at the same time, that's interesting. That kind of reflects the truth that bad things happen to both bad and good people. Books always say bad things happen to good people or bad things happen to bad people. It's bad things happen to everyone. You live in a bad world. Bad things happen. In this case, though, the Lord is choosing to end Saul's life on this day as a result of Saul's sin and the timing God has for what he's doing in David's life, of course. And the the fact that Saul went and consulted with his medium just puts the cherry on the top. It's the opportunity for God to make a point in Saul's life about where that kind of behavior falls in God's view. But his godly son, Jonathan, the friend of David, 
he too will die tomorrow, also because of Saul's sin. This is not a punishment against Jonathan. Jonathan's a victim of his father's sin. Nevertheless, some might question whether that's just. Is it fair that God would take Jonathan's life too? Well, first, the Lord's going to take Jonathan's earthly life one day, one way or another. So therefore, you can't judge God for the timing or the manner by which God chooses to take someone's life. I mean, if it's going to happen, then the manner or the timing of it is not a a fair means of judging the character of God. Furthermore, sin has consequences for us and others. And these are the consequences of Saul's sin. The consequence of Saul's sin ultimately was the end of Saul's dynasty. That's the fundamental consequence. And a dynasty, by definition, is the continuing line of ruling within a household. So if God has put an end to the dynasty, that, that means that not only will Saul not have the rule, but neither can anyone else in his household have the rule. And in that day and age, as is actually still the case today among monarchs, as long as there's a living heir, that's a threat to the existing monarch. So David can't rule effectively without putting away all of Saul's children, with the only exception being an interesting gentleman that we talked about earlier, that he comes up in Second Samuel. And he's no threat because of his infirmity. But this man, Jonathan, has the power and the capability to, to reign if someone chooses to make him king, and God's going to take him out. Jonathan cannot live on to interfere with David's rise to power. That's the first thing that I find interesting in 19. But the second thing in verse 19, it provides us with conclusive proof, the proof we've been seeking concerning the disposition of Saul's heart. So often, I know we've puzzled in here at Saul's Decisions, and in particular, we've wondered at all his ungodliness, right? Could Saul, and we've had the conversation in here at times, could Saul truly be a saint and yet do all the things that he's seen to do? And I've taught, as you heard along the way, that Saul's life is an archetype for the carnal believer, and that is to say, it is my position that he is a saint, but he's a good example of how far a saint can go in disobedience. And now, friends, we have our proof. Samuel tells Saul that at the end of the next day, after Saul and Jonathan are dead, they're both going to be where Samuel is. Now now notice, Samuel says, both the disobedient Saul and the obedient Jonathan will be with the prophet Samuel. So whatever you think of Saul, you've got to think the same of the other two, and vice versa, because they're all together. Had Saul been destined to occupy a different place, I doubt Samuel would have phrased his response this way. But by connecting both Saul and Jonathan to Samuel, the implication is they share the same eternal fate. So it would confirm for us that their hearts knew the Lord, but they're just in very different ends of the spectrum of sanctification. Finally, verse 19 confirms the coming defeat of the army of Israel in battle. Um, That will not mean the end of the nation, certainly, but it does show that the people's fate is also connected to the fate of the king. So Saul's disobedience has produced consequences not only for his family, but for the nation as a whole. Next week, we'll pick up here. We'll cover the rest of this chapter. I'm not going to do the rest tonight because it kind of leads us into what comes next. Keeping in mind that all of this stuff that David is involved in doing still has consequences we have yet to see play out uh, toward the end of the book. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you would uh, remind us of the dangers and the power that the demonic world possesses and why, Father, we cannot play with these things or brush up even against them for we... We take those things lightly uh, to our own detriment, Father, for there is real power in the enemy, and that power, Father, is pointed directly against us. Uh, Father, you are stronger, for the one who's in us is so much stronger than anything in the world. And you can do it all, all that we ask you to do, Father, in defense, but um, can you protect us from ourselves when we're determined to disobey you? The scriptures show us, Father, that 
there are times in which you allow us to, to take that walk away from you. Not to our destruction in the end, Father, but certainly to our judgment. I pray, Father, you would uh, preserve us from that, protect us, give us wisdom and discernment to always see things as you do. And remind us, Father, that the carnality of our life can come back when we least expect it. Lord, let us be on guard against it. Uh, resting in the fact and in the knowledge that we're saved by faith alone, and therefore, Father, we have no reason to uh, worry, but never letting that be licensed either, Father. And thank you, Lord, for continuation of our study. As we come near the end of it, I pray, Father, you'll continue to give us energy and stamina to concern ourselves with what's in this book and with what we learn as we leave. And I do ask, Father, even in these last days of the study, you might bring a few more with us to study as we make new friends in the body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.